Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and this week I got Adam Myros with me. Myros, how you doing? Oh, uh, I'm doing all right. I feel like I'm I'm really getting a feel for Albert Pune these days. That's good. That's the only feeling you really need in your life. Just had Valentine's Day. You want to really experience love? You watch an Albert Pune movie. He'll teach you a thing or two. Especially if you like like really like muscular women. That's kind of that's kind of his thing. Uh, <laughs> also joining us, Jack Easton. Jack, how you doing? Um. Here, represent all the muscular women out there. <laughs> You're the most muscular woman I know. Thank you, Steve. How was your trip to Ohio? Oh, it was it was beautiful. Um, I stayed at one of the fanciest hotels in downtown Columbus with a beautiful view of a multi-story car park. Uh, stunning, wonderful time. Was that the Hyatt? There's the Marriott, I believe. Oh, the Marriott. Okay, okay. Yeah, you know, classy as hell. Also, it had uh, curtains that spanned the whole length of each wall. It was like a corner room and it had curtains that run the whole length of the wall, which makes you think that you have massive windows, but the windows are regular size. <laughs> and just, just incredible views of that Columbus uh, cityscape, right? It's a, yeah, of a multi-story car park and uh, the top of the building next door's aircon units. Just a beautiful time. <laughs> So last time I was in Columbus, I had to go there for work and I was in the back of an Uber and the Uber driver was just like, Hey, so what's up with you guys to me and my boss? And we're like, what what do you mean? And then she said, are you brother and sister? And we said, no, she said, so you're married. And I said, absolutely not. And, uh, (laughs) I don't know how keen my boss was on that one. Yeah, you you got to modulate your level of protest for that. Yeah, yeah, you got to be a little careful. We're like, oh, no, we're here for, for work. Love to do work stuff in Columbus. And then she said, well, do you want a good recommendation for a restaurant? And said, yeah, sure, you can give us a recommendation we didn't ask for. Why not? And she recommended a Japanese restaurant which she insisted had the best fettuccine Alfredo she had ever had. What in God's I thought this was going to be more Midwest. Like, well, you, you got to check out Shoney's or something. <laughs> no, I would have taken an Applebee's wreck at that point. And I, I don't know what the fuck was going on there. And then, you know, we we're just trying to be polite. We're like, oh, you know, thank you for your, your fettuccine Al Sushi recommendation. And, <laughs> um, you know, that's great. And then she said, what are you doing on Sunday? And we were like, I, I don't know, like probably flying home Sunday night. Like what? <laughs> She's like, oh, well, I was going to invite you to my church that I was just like, God, if we were out of the fucking freeway right now, I'd just throw myself out the door. <laughs> oh, it's the old Midwestern charm. This is great. You know, it's, it's kind of an underrated moment because, you know, it's that's that's what the Midwest is all about. It's just unsolicited kindly advice from people who give you the vibe that they want to chop you up and throw you in their trunk so to be fair you've got to give that recommendation because who's going to know they could even get fettuccine at a japanese place that's true that's true i i wish i remembered the name of the restaurant because 
that entire experience was it was kind of it was jarring i've tried to erase it from my mind up until this moment but you know you and your damn columbus trip it just brings all these horrible memories back but yeah uh speaking of horrible memories just kidding just kidding we've been on a weird journey with albert pune man so this whole thing started because we watched the cyborg trilogy of which Albert only technically directed the first one. And then we kind of come back to Morpune and we had a, a great episode with Justin DeClaw on where we talked about basically all things Pune. We Pune-pilled the masses. It was wonderful. And now we're back again because these two previous episodes have sort of converged into something new. Now, Albert Pune makes Cyborg. And as we discussed previously, it's edited, hacked to shit, and released, and it's not his original vision. Additionally, after the movie is released, it's pretty successful, and they go on to make two sequels that we covered, but Albert Pune had no involvement. But at the same time that those movies were being made, he was making his own cyborg sequels, often his own P-Universe but somehow it feels like the official sequels are somehow more spiritually tied to his original vision than his actual sequels. So I, I, if you got like a whiteboard right now, you can kind of diagram this out. The whole thing is just colossally fucking confusing. What the hell is going on with this, Jack? Well, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, Cyborg came out... Uh... Well, it, before Cyborg was released, and I think uh, Justin mentioned this, the, the story is basically the executive sat in to watch Cyborg and uh, Sheldon Ledich, who people might recognize as a director of several of Van Damme's films and apparently a good friend of his, sat in for Cyborg and he didn't like what he saw. He It was too slow, it wasn't action-oriented enough, Van Damme looked like a pussy. So he called up Van mm. Damme and he was like, you need you need to get on this, you need to fix it, and Van Damme basically called his people, whoever the hell they are, and they came in, they took the movie off of Pyun, they re-edited it to make it more action-oriented, etc., and uh, that's that's a cyborg we know, which is a kind of a weird, intense movie that we've talked about before that I'm kind of quite fond of, but it, it is still quite strange. But uh, it, as you say, it wasn't what Pyun wanted. He, in, later on, went back and made his own version, uh, kind of re-edited his old work print into a sparkling HD master of Cyborg. So basically at every time there's a new cut, <laughs> it like cuts from like sparkling HD to like just dog shit VHS quality to really maximize the viewing experience. Yeah, this is real Bush League stuff. Oh, this yeah. is like, uh, like when people were passing around like a work print version of Halloween 6, maybe like five, ten years ago. And they're like, no, this Halloween movie is good. It is unfairly maligned. It's not a colossal pile of shit. And then not only was it still bad, but it was it was this bizarre uh, just, you know, cuts to shit with like time codes on the bottom. And it just is like totally out of focus. And they're like, yeah, this fixes everything. It does not fix everything. So a little rough around the edges. This is somehow like a worse approach than even that. Like I've seen that version of Halloween. There's a alien 3 version that does something similar as well but at least those have like the courtesy and probably because the director themselves did not assemble this work print cut and weren't that attached to the material they were just kind of putting in things that fundamentally 
shifted the focus and, and changed the narrative to something that makes sense. So so if you're watching Halloween 6 work print cut, you're going to get like four inserts of this trash footage throughout the entirety of the film. Here in, in Slinger, you got about 400, and most of them are just... <laughs> slightly extended versions of scenes that exist like for no yeah. reason it's just a bizarre choice as a re-edit to, to uh, it's the extra walking to. edition yeah it's a full <laughs> it's a full genuine re-edit which means and I, I guess part of this is that like the main thing Pyun wanted to do and it becomes apparent watching Slinger is that he, his film his original vision of the film is a much more existential uh, anguished slow film about a man kind of at a crossroads unwilling to take action because everything he loves has died in this post-apocalyptic world that uh, doesn't feature a plague the plague from cyborg sparely in there originally is revealed to have been a late film addition there's no plague in slinger just it's just post-apocalyptic uh, post-apocalypse and there's just a satanic tribe wandering around who love to cause mayhem in the name of satan um, but but basically, Pyun wants to to slow everything down, and to do that, he he re-edits every single scene, every cut. So yeah, it's constantly changing between. And this this got an official release, I think, in Germany. There was a Blu-ray, which is probably the source of what we watched. This is not an easy film to find, just generally, it's long out of print. So um, mm -hmm. good luck tracking it down. But when you do track it down, brace yourself for um, <laughs> pretty, it's it's a weird experience. And, you kind of adjust to it, but at the same time, it's a little bit frustrating. It's like it just cuts to like real garbage looking thing. Just so you can get like an extra, like literally like an extra four frames of Van Damme hanging off a wire or something. Yeah, I think it also calms down from the start of the film. Like the start, the start of the film is just ridiculous. Every single scene is just this insert of a few frames. It's like, why the fuck are we doing this? And there are things that fundamentally changed this movie like i was a little hard on cyborg compared to the two of you in the first episode here but i think that this cut answers a lot of my questions a lot of which surrounded uh vincent klein's character fender tremolo uh i was like i don't <laughs> understand why they're modulating his voice like this what the fuck's the deal with his eyes what's the significance of this character beyond personally to van damme and here, that's all cleared up. Like, he is this sort of agent of Satan on Earth. Like, he is... Uh, he is kind of... He's not just a random gang leader, we'll say. He seems to be of, of tremendous significance to this post-apocalyptic world. Sure. And that is not clarified at all in Cyborg. Yeah, yeah. It, it really contextualizes the Jean-Claude Van Damme is literally crucified in the like later half of this movie like uh because before you're like whoa i i don't know you know where this came from but setting him up as a satan figure instead of say yeah like you said like a gang leader yeah he is almost like he's almost a randall randall flag from the stand type character in this i would say mm -hmm. this, i think this version takes quite a bit from the stand even though uh Ironically, that is an actual movie that involves a plague, but uh, this one feels a lot more akin to something like that than the sort of Mad Max clone that I, I read the theatrical cut of Cyborg as. Like, this is not that. It's its own thing in a way that is 
really refreshing to me. Like I was like, wow, mm. I wish this movie existed in a way that was not hacked to high hell either by a studio or by uh pune after the fact with the earth's worst footage. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that you could say that about, I don't know, two thirds of Albert Pune's movies. There's so many things you watch. You're like, that was good. And there's something genuinely great here. It just, it just barely misses the mark. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating that, yeah, this is one of Pune's like fully funded efforts. And he really didn't get a lot of those and he got kicked off. So in the end, his fullest realization of one of the films where he had, you know, actual money behind him still looks like shit. Like, it still looks like corners were cut just because he literally only had a work print, an old work print, which I'm guessing may have been VHS sourced or I don't know how, what he did or he, <laughs> like, recorded it off. Like, he had, it was a film work print, but he could only record in, like, absolute, like, TV quality, standard definition. It's, like, it, it's mm -hmm. real fuzzy. It does not hold up well. Um, you know, so it's kind of unfortunate because I think the film, it it really is, I think, a better film. The the biggest change for me, um, which is definitely worth mentioning, is the soundtrack. He reinstates oh, yeah. uh, Tony Ripperetti's guitar soundtrack, which was what he always intended, uh, rather than, as anyone who's seen Cyborg will recall, the soundtrack is basically like shitty MIDI Casio keyboard kind of tones over the whole thing, which makes no sense considering how insanely intense everything in that film is. And we learn part of the, the the intensity of that film is because things are missing. So everything just seems like ratchet from zero to 100 instantly. And then there's just like a guy playing like a crappy keyboard over top. So they, they fixed that here. And, it I, you know, that alone, I think, makes Slinger a better film. Honestly, every all the other edits aside. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I would agree. I think a lot about Slinger is, is better. I mean, there are things that don't work still i mean it shows a lot of pune's uh weaknesses as well i would say he has uh a great fondness for voiceover for certain and uh some of which is detrimental to uh, a movie that's trying to be a little slower and more subtle at times i i don't need vincent klein's character to have a vo narration of like i am your reason for living this is the main character's motivation. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and it's like, kind of okay. funny because um, the one thing we do lose, the, the, the dialogue is moved later into the film. But like one of the best things about Cyborg is I think the opening voiceover from Klein's character about how, you know, the world has fallen into disrepair and he's like, and they're looking for a cure and you expect, you know, you would expect the voiceover to say, that's good. And instead we realize it's the villain talking. He's like, why? I like the pain. I like the suffering. And it's this great you know, kind of immediate introduction to the film. That's gone in this, that, that dialogue has moved into an actual conversation Klein is having with, uh, I guess, the guy who's trying to rescue rescue the eponymous cyborg, who is still mostly just a MacGuffin in this film. She kind of, she mm -hmm. barely is there. Um, but it kind of loses a little bit of impact, but I guess it makes sense that this is a slower, uh, kind of a slower ratcheting up film about Van Damme and his pastoral, kind of bucolic life he nearly had with this woman and her children in a like plantation style house and uh, it all fell apart because vincent klein's uh, gang murdered all of them uh and you know as happens that that had some odd choices too because they had a ton more footage in the final cut of cyborg of that pastoral home if you will and 
Hune cuts to that footage in a totally different way than is in the theatrical cut. But he doesn't use the theatrical cuts like footage of that stuff. I, I have no idea why, but whatever he cuts to it, he's cutting to the fucking dumpster footage. And it's like, you got plenty to work with in the other cut of the film, man. Just use that. I mean, this feels like Pyun absolutely, like, holding to his own line. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's like a separate take of the same scene. And he's like, this take was bad. This is a take I would have used. I don't care if the other one looks clear and you can see what's happening in it. This is the correct take for the film. Yeah, that's where Jean-Claude really, you know, you can see that extra twinkle in his eye and during that cut. That's that's why you got to use the dumpster footage for sure. <laughs> where this suffers in comparison to Cyborg is the conclusion. I mean, not not even like the climax. The, the climactic fight is enriched greatly by the subtext we're given to this thing. But um also, it's made shorter in Slinger. They get rid of the thing where he comes back to life for no reason. Klein's character, yeah. they just kind of abridge it, which honestly works just fine. It's just that, that what follows that makes a little bit less sense. And by little, I mean lots. I guess there's this whole uh, thing about the cyborg's mission is not to cure the plague in this version, obviously, but is in fact to restore technology and that seems like a noble gesture but there's actually some sort of conspiratorial element where they're trying to dupe both klein and van damme to escorting this person so they can uh basically utilize technology to uh restore power to their faction and and kind of take mm -hmm. over the earth and rule it as they would and so instead of this sort of noble ending for Van Damme's character, where we're we're celebrating this hero and his mission that was successful, instead it's a, it's just like this super fucking quick thing, where they don't even have like recorded, they have like VO dialogue, uh, so they're just ADRing it over of them going like, the mission has been completed, now we will rule the earth, and it's just like <laughs> super fucking tacked out and quick, and then we get this. <laughs> This goddamn ridiculous thing that I assumed was the setup to to uh, knights, but is in fact not. Where all of a sudden we get like a fucking Terminator come back uh, at the end of the movie, who's a full frontal nudity uh, last, just kind of lightning balls into uh, the warehouse for the earlier <laughs> fight, and you're like, "What the fuck is this?" When I first got the <laughs> file with that, I I don't know what I was doing, but I was just testing the file, and I like skipped. I guess I just checked. I guess I made sure there were end credits or something. I skipped right to the end of the file, and that was like the first sequence I saw was this like CG naked woman with like robotic bits hanging out, and I was like, "This can't <laughs> be the right movie. This is something else." But no, it turns yeah, out also it's just that is not on. the work print footage, right? That is that no, is like he shot that new somewhere. Like <laughs> yeah. of all the things he shot, new it was that. And I, I, I would be curious to know where he got that. Like, <laughs> is it left over from another movie we haven't seen? It's it's possible because his totally later has to be leftovers. Like, his later movies are all like green screen to hell, and this is. This is very clearly also a green screen thing, and you just got some woman, I guess, and strapped some, like, aluminum foil to her head or whatever, and there we go. So what is, what is perhaps most amusing to think of it as newly filmed is that it was, it was surely filmed after Knight's 
was wrapped. You know, th- th- this is filmed well after the existence of the sequel to this film, but this is what he uses as a coat. <laughs> yep. Makes perfect sense. <sighs> and then the intro to Knights, as we get there eventually, I, I don't necessarily want to pivot fully, but the intro to Knights mentions this unknown 21st century cyborg. And I'm like, oh, that must be that full frontal nudity woman. It's like, no. Uh, booby lady. <laughs> no, it is nope. not. <laughs> I mean, this part of what I love about Pyun, uh, I mean, it's kind of endearing because, I mean, I've seen enough shitty genre films and sequels that honestly, you you kind of come to understand that like sequels are necessarily, you know, following up on a universe or an idea or giving the audience what you promised is like often kind of boring and stuff. I kind of like the way that Pyun kind of promises things and then just doesn't do them or go like kind of this you know spiritual sequel in like heavy air quotes sort of like it's it's not like spiritual sequel in that it has the same title as the first one with a two stuck after or whatever Uh, (laughs) but you know it's kind of endearing that he just he, he seems incapable of of reining himself in when he when he moves on to the next film it's it is it has to be whatever his idea is at that point like he just he mm-hmm. can't help himself so yeah so like knights is has almost nothing to do with cyborg um and what it does have to do with cyborg is arguably more distracting and confused like maybe the most distracting and confusing part of the whole movie because it's just yes. um you know like because it, it's literally just uh title like text on the screen inform you this character is actually the great granddaughter <laughs> of van damme's character and that's it there's no other mention of it and also it doesn't make sense because it's 200 years in the future so a great granddaughter would not be 200 years on unless life expectancies are like strangely longer in the post-apocalypse yeah and it mentions that 21st century cyborg which is chris christopherson's character but i'm like when the fuck is when is this meant to be taking place? <laughs> like, is the 21st century the distant past? The distant future? <laughs> I, I have no... I'm untethered here. <laughs> Whichever is most interesting to you, I think, is, is probably the best answer. <laughs> I'm, And also, Vincent Klein plays Vincent Klein's great-great-grandson as well. Yes. <laughs> Fender Treblo III, who is not named Fender Treblo III throughout the rest of the film, but in fact named Ty. But there you go. <laughs> He if Pion if Pion had 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 his way it would have been which doesn't make sense yeah because because again was there a studio worth- head like you cannot call this guy Fender no that's where we draw the fucking line why would anyone give a shit <laughs> it's true given everything we know about knights like honestly why would you draw a line at the name of the characters it, the the film is an absolute oddity like it's such an oddity of American genre cinema. Um, I don't, are, are we done with Cyborg? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. So we, we move on here to uh, what is technically Cyborg 2 in the P-Universe. Um, I guess. And you may know this as Knights. Uh, I'm sure it played on Cinemax quite a bit in the mid-90s. <laughs> or you might know it as uh, the alternate Pune cut title, Kingdom of Metal. Uh, no matter what title you know it by uh it looks like shit because no one's taken even five minutes to clean this bad boy up which is a shame because i think this is one of the purest pion films ever made um and let me let me give you a little little taste here i'm gonna give you a little taste from the trailer in a world of darkness this 
So in the future, you've got Chris Christopherson's sexual robot debonair man, uh, who's I don't know he's he's pretty old at this point, and you've got a uh, a buff lady, and they team up to kill Lance Henriksen and his vampire robot friends, and the way they do that is Chris Christopherson teaches the buff lady how to fight like she's in crouching tiger hidden dragon the end is that right is it pretty did much. i get it <laughs> to, to, to put this i guess to follow on from my 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 previous thought like this is unthinkable to me that this film even exists and was magically put together in any format oh, uh, and it's I, wild. i'm fully i'm fully in agreement with um justin de who who pointed out in his book on albert pion he says this is an american wuxia film and it is, mm-hmm. which in 1992, he made a wuxia film, which is insane, you know, because, I mean, the flying action here is that whole Chinese uh, kind of subgenre of, like, flying anti-gravity swordsmen, you know, kind of traveling around, um, is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was, what, 1999 or so, or 2001, I guess. Um, yeah. And which, like, a huge, was a huge hit, massive hit, uh, insane that it was such a success, but that was like the exception that proved the rule that generally speaking, Western audiences for some reason will not accept that kind of stylized form of action where characters, you know, kind of fly and they jump and they just soar away and they fight while they're flying, etc. you know, clashing swords and things. And they name all their moves, you know, they tell you the form of Kung Fu they're using, etc. and name it often in the middle of the fight. They'll just tell you what move they're, mm-hmm. they're unleashing the Crimean attack. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's a very specifically Chinese genre of cinema. And the idea that Albert Pion, again, and I, it's, it just seems he cannot help himself in 1992, <laughs> just decide like, yeah, I could, I could make one of these and did <laughs> somehow. Is and he remarkable. made it in like the middle of the Nevada desert. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's nothing here. There's just like it's just dirt. It's dirt for 90 minutes. There's no there's no change of scenery at all. I think at one point for a single fight they're in a wooded area for like 10 minutes. Other than that, it's it's probably a single square mile in Nevada or like Barstow, California, just dirt everywhere. Um this this whole thing is cheap as shit looking, okay? <laughs> But it's great. It's somehow great. This is it's super engaging. Nothing about this movie makes sense in terms of why it's it's so entertaining. But the action moves along. Christofferson is is really good, even though he's in his his post uh, like late nineteen seventies. People just stopped giving a shit about him. So there was a you could you could get yourself a discount Christofferson in nineteen ninety three, and. He's fantastic. Uh, Lance Henriksen's always good as a villain here. He's he's great. And I think it's all the little touches that they add, you know, like even with Henriksen, the fact that he's got some weird like claw arm thing going on. Uh, also, Very dumb. It's, it's all stupid as 
fuck. Like, I, I cannot emphasize enough just how silly it is, but that's why it's great. <laughs> this is the, the joy of, like, the, this journey through the cinema of Albert Pyun is that I now know that in the 90s, someone made a wuxia action film in America in the desert starring Lance Henriksen and Chris Christopherson. Yeah. It's like, it's mad lib cinema. This is yeah. nothing makes sense in it. Uh, Lance Henriksen is particularly fun in this because he's really channeling his like pit in the pendulum, Stuart Gordon, like just insanely just like stern in the midst of a film that's not anywhere near as stern as he is. Um, and it's it's a kind of a very fun setup. And he has this vampire claw because uh, the, the cyborgs <laughs> of the future uh, use human blood to survive uh, past their, their original intended lifespan. So it's it. Yeah, the story doesn't make any sense. If you try and no. break it out, it, it kind of falls apart real quick. I think it makes even less sense if you watch the uh, Pune director's cut quote unquote oh that's I, the I best part this is the greatest director's cut of all time okay <sighs> there's nothing added at all except for there's like a, a weird prologue like just scrolling text and then anytime a character comes on screen there's text underneath him that's like oh yeah that's so-and-so they're the grandson of this person uh that so-and-so they're totally related to this person from the first cyborg so these movies are in the same universe just trust me like that's it's everything the, that fucking <laughs> prologue though is is just the unfilmed prologue which i it's not like it's set up like a fucking scene how exactly did you plan to fill i, I love prologue? the energy of because because it's, it's absolutely the energy of just like they wouldn't just let me do whatever i wanted to do and i'm mad about it but also in the prologue it becomes evident that maybe they didn't let him do whatever he wanted to because he wasn't entirely certain what he was gonna do at that time and they were like we're not yeah earmarking any also, funds for that the, the explanation is more or less everything in the prologue cannot be shot in a desert therefore you are not allowed to do this based on your current budget <laughs> restraints yeah as i understand the prologue it is that the initial research from Cyborg led to the construction of, of 20 cyborgs who had uh, a power cell that lasted one year. I don't even remember what their plan was to send them out to do. Something about the probably oh, kill Satanists or something. I don't no, know. They, they, had, they were to go out and restore order using their technology. I guess they would have, they would have knowledge of technology so they could, they could rebuild the world. But um, there's a fantastically within the open scroll, they're like, and they were all named biblical names, such as Job, Simon, John, etc. Which is just <laughs> You think you would have gone like, with like uh, 12 if you wanted a biblical yeah. thing, right? No, we named yeah, 20 was a poor choice. No. Now, uh, yeah, but then the evil Brick Bardo, who, uh, again, Pune, I get you like to use this name, but that is a character in Cyborg, and, and surely not the same character. I don't think that giant muscle man uh, just decided he was going to fucking get into Cyborg construction. But, uh, yeah, Brick Bardo christens himself the master builder and corrupts all the Cyborgs by making them feed on human blood. And, uh... That's the plot, I guess. Then a uh, couple hundred years pass. We have the extra cyborg who who is who only has a one year power supply. Was built by the master builder's uh, adversary. None of this we see. This is all in the prologue, just text. Um, Correct. But yeah, yeah, he builds Gabriel, 
which is also a biblical name. I don't know if you guys knew that. That's a little, little <laughs> reference there. Oh. Uh, Gabriel, played by Chris Christopherson, uh, is charged with killing the 20 other cyborgs uh, in a year with his power supply. And the reason he can do this while these 20 cyborgs lay waste to the entire world is because he's aware of the Crimean attack, which, so far as I'm aware, involves kicking them or something of that uh, nature. Don't forget the uh, the Mont Blanc offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so in in partnership those two things are excellent for killing cyborgs uh, and they basically employ themselves in the cyborgs heads are vulnerable so if you jam a knife in there they die well you would think with the entire population of the earth that someone would have tried to uh damage the head of one of these 20 <laughs> cyborgs who are running no, rough no one guessed that the way to kill someone effectively is to stab them in the head no one was thinking <laughs> about this <laughs> If only it worked on humans, they would have figured it out. Yeah. But no. Oh, until a star was born and his name was Chris Christopherson and he figured it out. <laughs> oh, Lord. Gotta, gotta get back to it. It's just fun. I guess if you can get Chris Christopherson for this sort of thing, it adds a little gravitas. But it's very strange casting for, like, this, guy, this you know, ultimate weapon against the cyborg. Because he's, he's an old man. He can't move. Yeah. It yeah. helps that the print looks like shit because it's clearly a stunt double for like 70% of his screen time when he's fighting it, you know? Oh, yeah. Because real Christopherson, he looks like your uncle that like smokes weed in a garage and listens to Pink Floyd records until his wife yells at him. Like, that is it. But again, <laughs> like at the end of this movie, uh, our main character just straps legless Christopherson onto her back in a backpack and then he gets a sword and then they continue fighting together, which is mm -hmm. insane. Like, where else are you going to find that action set piece in an American movie? It's there's like there really is a, a genuine well of imagination here. And part of it is just like the balls that Pion had to just basically make a film in a genre that just literally doesn't exist in the West and just kind of follow his own instincts and have it. And it's got like various things where like a character will jump and then they'll just appear at the top of a mountain. They'll like jump into the frame. And it's like this. So all the movement is in an edit, which is like very typical of Wuxia and particularly like King Hu's work. And um, mm -hmm. whoever would have thought that King Hu and Albert Gunn would like mesh together, <laughs> the master's craftsman and the guy who's made some stuff. Uh, it's, it's but it's it really is a fun film it like steve said it's just a really entertaining movie and you don't you don't really have much cause to stop and wonder why the fuck is any of this happening yeah yeah it's a lot of it is due to the secondary characters for me i mean kathy long is ostensibly becomes the lead even though it's, it's more like focused on christopherson initially but kathy long is picking up that physicality end of things that van damme left behind obviously but um and she's like a, a kickboxer she didn't have much of any film career but she's actually quite good in this i think and the other thing is uh again henriksen is having some fun but he's also half there and uh his kind of second in command the guy who plays simon scott Pollan, who's mainly a tv actor but he is he is happy to be in this fucking thing. He's having a goddamn Paul, meal. Paulin's in a lot thing. of Pyun's work. He he shows up in a lot of roles in Pyun's films, and I think this is probably one of his best because yeah, he he's, rules, he's like this. He's the grinning psychotic cyborg, right? That's his his whole yeah. thing, and having mm -hmm. a good time. And he's got like fun, some pretty good makeup actually. For he he gets like his nose and stuff damaged, and it's like shows through, which 
looks pretty good on screen considering the quality of the print. We cannot emphasize how bad the print looks. Yeah, one of my like uh, faults with this movie, I guess, is, is where it kind of fell for me is that I almost wish that Pollen was playing the main villain because when he exits the film about halfway through, you kind of lose some momentum because his performance is just pure energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then also worth mentioning this, one of the other cyborgs is Gary Daniels, who they also like <laughs> really, I don't know, does he even say a word in this movie? I don't recall if he does. He just shows up and does a couple of couple of split kicks and then is dispatched. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, man. This this is, uh, it's, I, I, I don't know if, if like there's a single DTV uh, just American movie in the 90s that you can compare this to no it's a complete aberration like frankly this this is something i think that genre film fans really have to seek out just to take a look at themselves because this honestly is like such a it doesn't rewrite the timeline because there is no timeline for the genre in <laughs> <Yeah>. american <laughs> cinema but the fact that it even just exists at all it's like just this weird blip on the radar of american direct to, to video television cinema you know Mm -hmm. So if I had to compare this to one thing, and I, I think this is a good touch point, just to give you an idea if this is something you might be interested in. Um, I recently gave Jack a uh, DVD that I got from the dollar store of a movie called The Crippled Masters about a guy with no arms and a guy with no legs who team up and uh, fight, you know, hopping vampires and, uh, you know, evil people <laughs> so classic inclusive cinema yeah if you like if you like jackie khan movies from the late <laughs> 1970s just the absolute like lowest level weird exploitation kung fu cinema this is your shit okay it's it's weird it's fun and i it's it's dumb but i mean that in the best way when i say dumb i mean you know, it's it's turn your brain off, but just let it wash over you. Don't think about anything too hard because what is on screen? Well, it looks like shit because this is like a VHS tape, but it's good stuff. So highly recommended. I'll keep an eye out for uh, Tim Thomerson as well. He's he's in there for like thirty seconds, sitting around <laughs> a fire. <laughs> and and we yeah. we might talk about the the end of this film as well because it opens with like that weird prologue that's like, here's the things they wouldn't allow me to shoot. And then it ends with a voiceover of like, we had to venture out to go to, I, I can't even remember, like the cyborg city to, you know, finish our quest. Does the third move in the cyborg trilogy pick up from that point? Let's Absolutely find out. Not. Well, yeah, because there's a thing where it, it's even more convoluted than that, because she has a brother that is introduced in the prologue, in the actual prologue, not the unfilmed prologue. Uh, Kathy Long's character has a brother who she's separated from at some point off screen. And she f recognizes that this kid she runs into later in the film is her brother. The ages do not add up. Let's not try to uh, make that work, but oh, I was trying to do that mental this math. lovable scamp who, who must be her brother. He's got the same birth birth. And the evil master builder, uh, I guess, brick Bardo. Uh, he's not really in the movie, but he just kind of shows up in the last 10 minutes and, and, doesn't I don't I speak talking about don't have a line in the movie. I don't even think the main villain has a line in the movie. He just kind of swoops in and has a goofy helmet and steals the brother and takes the brother to Cyborg City. So you're like, oh, this is setting something up. No, no, nope. no, nope. 
Never hear but from hey, him again. We don't get anything. Yeah, it, this is this is Albert Pune to a T because it's this just genre film grab bag that ends with a setup for a sequel. And you get a sequel, but it has nothing to do with the previous movie. Instead, you get a little something with Rucker Hauer called Omega Doom. Rucker Hauer. Who are you? You're an outsider. In an epic science fiction thriller. They want the world all for themselves. In a powerful new vision of our future. The realms and the droids got here just about the same time. And then the killing started. So... When we watched the original Cyborg a few weeks back, I half-jokingly but mostly seriously called it, like, Yojimbo. And then I I made the same comment when we had Justin on, and his response was, just wait until you see Omega Doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pion has you covered. Um, he, he literally, does. Li- literally, Omega Doom is it's Yojimbo with two gangs of Cyborgs and a cyborg in the middle. We're at cyborgs to pure standard. I think they're androids, most all of them. But whatever, uh, this matter. is this is androids and cyborgs. Those that's the warring factions, I believe. Yeah, at least Pune like tries to wash it away. It's like, yeah, they're like cadaver parts. I'm like, well, I guess that's gray area. I don't know what you'd call a cadaver. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to jump back just very previously and just mention that. Uh, it is weird to me, and uh, typical of the chaos of all of this, that Knight, Pyun's own part of the his own cyborg trilogy, points towards a cyborg city, and then the official cyborg three, the recycler, which he had nothing to do with, has a cyborg city in it, which is That's correct. And it's the same with Cyborg Two, where uh, the end of Cy- of Pyun's cyborg cut, Slinger, points to a. Uh, tech overthrow of this uh, unruly wasteland, which is then somewhat depicted in Cyborg 2 in a way that is, is certainly not depicted in Knights. Very strange. That, it, it <laughs> All is, these things are And then I guess for, for further connection in Cyborg 2, Glass Shadow, the non-Pyun film, there is an explosive injected into the character's body, which is a plot point in Albert Pyun's nemesis. So I don't know who's stealing from who at this point. It's just absolute, just all over the place. And if you want to keep cinema is ongoing conversations, man. It's just movies speaking to movies and echoing (laughs) each other. Yeah, metatextual stuff. But getting back to Omega Doom, I I kind of I kind of like this movie. And again, I kind of like just the first off. I think it's worth mentioning. You know, since we're doing this in the context of the official Cyborg trilogy and the Albert Pyun Cyborg trilogy. All of the Pune films, I think, are better than the official films, personally. Agreed. Um, and Omega Doom is maybe my least favorite of this three, but it's still a really odd film because it is, it's like a really, um, it's like a really slow, leaden-paced, anx- and like anxiety-driven chamber drama about just, it's like, it's got a cast of like eight people, uh, pretty much, or maybe nine, I guess. There's like three like three gangs of three cyborgs and then three people in between them or two gangs of three cyborgs and three characters in between on or around and many of the Mm. characters don't say anything and they just basically are all just hanging around the the storyline here effectively is um that there is a cache of there's supposedly like a secret massive store of guns 
buried somewhere in Earth in this post-apocalyptic wasteland X number of years after Cyborg 2, which will never be mentioned again. There's nothing to do with this, or knights, or whatever you'd like to call it. It doesn't really <laughs> matter. And um, these cyborgs, for some reason, are hell-bent on accessing these guns because they fear the humans are going to rise up again and they would need the guns to defend themselves from the humans, but the guns are like lost technology at this point, so they need to find this store. Um, but they're at an impasse, these two different groups of cyborgs who are, I guess, two different like tech iterations of cyborg. And uh, One of them looks like, literally looks like the Matrix, uh, like agents, but this movie was made three years prior to the Matrix. So, you know, Pyun is always like weirdly predicting or kind of like coming in ahead of the curve on a lot of things mm -hmm. um, but I, you know and at the same time it's often hard to give him recognition for it because clearly the ideas are never fleshed out in the way like there's a reason the stuff he did never catches on where it does with other people because they have much more fleshed out ideas um but essentially there's two groups and they're they're kind of like at a stalemate where they're antagonistic to each other and would like to kill each other but they don't want to make any move because they don't want to reveal where the guns might be or if they find the guns they don't want the other people to get it and they don't want to get the jump on them so they literally just stand on opposing corners of a square and just stare at each other menacingly <laughs> um meanwhile rutger hauer is uh android who i'm i'm unclear on this his memory is blanked by in a sword fight or something okay no, there's a shot. prologue he's, shot, so he's shot by a gun yeah but but guns aren't around and, and that happens in the beginning and then we, we get to see, he's got like a big ass sword and like a cool knife that he throws. Right, he has a sword. And my big takeaway is, it doesn't seem like guns are all that rare. And even if they were, I don't, I don't get the idea that they're particularly necessary in this world. Like, why does anyone need a gun? I think that it's, it's briefly, a th there's a throwaway line about it. I think that the guns are not especially useful to... The cyborgs, They're, the reason that they want them is to keep them away from the humans because the humans are no match for them in, like, close quarter combat. So the, the fact that they could create a sort of distanced warfare with the, this weaponry would be a potential danger I to mean, them. I th mean, this would make sense, except for then the, the added thing of in what kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland are... There, is there one store only of preserved guns in amounts no that would idea. you know allow you to overthrow cyborgs? But yeah, it's it's a very thin narrative base, and essentially Rutger Hauer wanders in as kind of the man with no name, uh, and basically sets both factions against each other. He plays them off each other, um, and in the middle you have uh, Norbert Weiser, uh, who's who's one of Pion's reg maybe his most regular player, repeating character actor. Uh, who plays a character called The Head, because for the majority of the film, he's a disembodied head, and he's basically the comedy relief in this movie, <sighs> which is <sighs> not very funny. He's not very funny, and the movie doesn't call for comedy relief, so it's confusing as to why he's there. And then another woman who um, gets water for the androids, because <laughs> they like what? a nice drink of water. Is she selling water? I, I, I don't understand half of I this. I think so. <laughs> yeah. But not ice. If you ask for ice, she tells you to fuck off. That's that's non-negotiable. You get water. Too far. <laughs> I don't see any currency changing hands, but you would think that it must to some extent. Like I think nominally, I think nominally she would be selling water, but the the androids are mean and won't pay for it. 
maybe. I guess that, but what does she need the money for, frankly? <laughs> sure, yeah, what does she need the money for? And also, why have the androids not just taken over her water business if they really want a frosty, cold glass of water, you know? I guess you could give this script an amount of credit in these behaviors. And I, I do think there's something going on with this, probably because it's remaking a smart film. But um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of it has to do with these machines unable to break their sort of programming loops. Like, they don't have any need for these guns, but they're programmed to seek out the guns. And then the same with the water seller, I mm -hmm. suppose. She's, she's there to sell water, but she doesn't have any there's no need for a dichotomy in this <laughs> current landscape but she's stuck in that routine you know yeah, yeah which is which i mean is i think definitely and the element the film is going for but then you have the head who is like an educational droid who's supposed to be a teacher who seems to follow no programming whatsoever uh, he's, yes. he's really just he's the audience surrogate effectively he's there to Basically, explain the, the movie scenario would be far better if the head would just have been kicked off screen very early in it i think <laughs> probably would have helped but he's, he's basically there to explain everything but that wouldn't be his programming as a droid uh, to you know basically provide expository dialogue constantly so is he free of his programming we don't know but rutger hauer effectively is free of his programming because he doesn't remember his programming except maybe at the end and that's and that's I guess you'd have to watch the movie to find out what happened. See, I don't know. Is he free of his programming, or was his programming just overwritten with new programming? Great question. Um, I don't recall at this juncture because it's been a while since I watched the movie. I don't think Albert Pion knows. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. one of the things is uh, you know. I mean, and I, I gotta say again, like I, I find his films endearing, but also like when you get into the nitty gritty of these these elements, it doesn't seem to matter which maybe isn't no. a huge resounding recommendation for his work. But um, yeah, it's kind of like he, he completes the mission of killing all of them. And then it's, I, I don't know, he like winks to the camera and leaves it sort of to, to wander the wasteland some more. Uh, at least it doesn't promise another sequel, which I guess is something <laughs> there are no more cyborg movies. There's other movies he makes with cyborgs, but they're their own thing, like Heat Seeker. Uh, which is like Mortal Kombat, but with cyborgs, uh, you know. I, I think you touched on something that's important with Pune movies, which is if you hold them to any scrutiny or think about the plot for more than three seconds, the whole thing just sort of disintegrates. Uh, but that's the magic of his films. And it's it's almost like a big fuck you to the, the whole like cinema sins perfect narrative makes a great film the type of film people like fuck all that oh, this is all about mood and just just the unexpected and pure uncut entertainment that's what you get yeah. from an albert pune film but at the same time if mm -hmm. you know you may he may falter narratively and a lot of times it's just big ideas that aren't fleshed out for one reason or another but i will be damned if for some reason, Omega Doom has some of the most impressive technical shit that I've seen Pune do. And there's there's just camera movements that he seems to insist on that blow my mind because I can't think of why he would make these decisions. But it's incredible. It's just total like, I, I don't know. It, it He subverts all of your expectations as a viewer. So there's a scene where it's just like a back and forth shot, reverse shot 
of Rutger Hauer talking to one of the Matrix robot ladies, but the camera is rotating around Rutger Hauer in one direction, and then it kind of swoops in the opposite direction around the <laughs> Matrix lady. 100% unnecessary, but completely compelling. And it adds all of this like weird motion and tension and importance to an otherwise completely mundane scene. It's fucking magical. Yeah, I, I think the value of Pyun to me is, is kind of like, you know, we've all seen a bunch of genre films. And honestly, they're mostly interchangeable. And the, the idea is, you know, the plot is not, no one remembers a plot. No one cares about a plot. It's the ideas and the tone, like you say. And, and that's... That's what we have, is that I'm not going to forget the tone of Omega Doom, even if I don't even remember the basic plot three minutes after it's over. <laughs> yep. See, this movie, like, really crystallized a lot of stuff for me. It it, uh, it it leans into some of his best impulses and some of his worst in ways. It's one of my favorite little, like, TV tropes types uh, things for uh, Albert Pune is he uses road signs as establishing uh, constantly. And this one really highlighted that for me because he focuses on this sign in the ruins that just says, like, Old World Europe. I'm like, why would such a fucking sign ever exist <laughs> anywhere on Earth? And, uh, well, that way we know like, it's an Old World Europe, I guess. It's <laughs> because he clearly, like, Scott. shot this. He, I, will, I will bet any amount of money that he shot this, like, in an abandoned factory in, like, Slovakia or... Like some like I, I don't know uh, fucking Eastern European theme park that celebrates Old World Europe that was completely That's my derelict. Feeling. It's like a, it's it's shot in or Disneyland or Disney World. You know, it's it's yeah, it's Yugoslavian Disney Center. World. They, we're in, we're in the old we're in the old Old World Europe section, and that's where the the um, and you know what that that actually reminds me because I believe an earlier draft of this film was like a Westworld concept that they were supposed to be theme park robots. Really? Interesting. So that could, although I don't know why they'd then be hunting for guns, but anyhow, yeah, and they were, which again would bring in the idea of them being bound to their programming and doing unnecessary tasks. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously that got pushed to the, to the side and got recycled later in the Westworld TV show, uh, <laughs> which is about 4,000 times more self-serious than anything Albert Pion has ever made, uh, for better or worse. So, you know, uh, yeah, it, who, who knows? But it is true. He does, like, um, in Cyborg, he's got that great, and, and in Slinger, he's got that great, uh, like, uh, crossroads sign that that Jean-Claude Van Damme walks by that like promises like heaven and hell or something oh, yeah. I can't remember but, he loves and, his and Atlanta or something he loves his signs the the other thing is uh again this is a, a fairly contemplative movie it's as slow as an Albert Pugh movie gets to what I've seen anyway I, I'm sure there's some chamber play nonsense he did way back in the day that uh, will best this but it is a movie with themes it's almost a real movie and uh then he makes a decision like oh every time a character moves it's got to sound like robocop stomping down fucking main street it's just like <laughs> <laughs> the whole fucking movie. the rest it of the movie like the the <laughs> it, it just the atmosphere evokes like stalker I, i'm not even kidding it's like 
bleak Tarkovsky <laughs> shit. But then, yeah. Every, yeah, like you said, oh, here comes a a, a Matrix robot. Beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> which, like, which is a insane decision to make. It's such a great decision because, firstly, in none of his other films about cyborgs, either in in the, the series or his own franchise or outside, do cyborgs make robot movies? Nope robot sounds which would defeat the purpose of them as like you know espionage or like for ble- like why would you make a robot that looks exactly like a human if it just sounds like a robot all the time you could presumably make it look like a human is one of the hardest parts of developing the technology um but it's it's such an odd touch and it reminds me of course uh for for the art film folks i mean it's like lancelot du lac the the bresson film which has knights in armor it's the arthurian legend and uh every single movement they make you can hear their their armor creaking and clanking and you know and it's uh, an obviously a very conscious decision bresson made throughout the entire movie it's just anytime anyone moves there's like a creak or a, a groan of the armor and there's a reason he does that in that film it highlights a lot of these kind of elements of of how we interact with like the past and our visions of you know things we wouldn't even think about like the fact that you know if everyone's wearing armor then yeah there would have been a bunch of weird sounds going on let alone thematic elements of vulnerability and so on you know, you can analyze why brasson does that till the cows come home why pyun does the same thing with the cyborgs really doesn't make any sense because everyone in the movie is a cyborg so we could, you could just say that there's not like there's one person who's revealed to be a human who didn't make those noises to begin with. <laughs> it, it there's no particular reason to do it, and the characters also act in like this very well. Some of them act in this very like stage, like they're doing the '80s robot dance on the dance floor, like these really staccato movements <laughs> to go along with it. Which again, no robot in any of his other movies has made this. So this is like many years in the future, and these robots are like shittier than any of the ones in like slinger or knights yeah it's yeah yeah that's that marco marco in the head their interaction really to me i'm like ah boy i wish this wasn't in the movie marco is just (laughs) some dennis rodman looking android who's (laughs) walking around kicking this head and the head uh, pune did not have the budget uh to really make this effect work at all (laughs) at any point during the film no, plus the head can roll somehow, which we're I'm, I don't quite understand how that works. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's 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 quite confusing. But I do, I do you know going back to like what Justin said when talking about Pyun, he like he mentioned that if this movie were in like Russian, honestly in any other foreign language, but especially in Russian, because as Steve mentions, it has this really heavy atmosphere to it, like just this weight to it. Um, Honestly, I think this movie might have been just a lot more popular. Even even if you mm-hmm. change nothing else about it, if you just made it, you know, distinctly foreign to a Western audience, I feel like people might have had more buy-in of like, well, it must be about something because of you know, because it, it clearly wants to be about something. I feel like there's there's that element where you know, if everyone's speaking in foreign, then it becomes you know a little bit more worthy of us, you know, digging into it. If it's not one of these, you know, just stupid you know just a bunch of of english speakers poncing around which is the entire <laughs> filmography of of albert pyun which was never taken very seriously until a select handful of people including ourselves decided to just dive in uh trust me jack i'm still not taking it especially seriously uh <laughs> although this this film is 
it's not it's not rock dumb like knights or anything like that it's also not as entertaining but i don't know you want to give me a samurai film uh anchored by rucker hauer i'll take it, it it's it's pretty solid <laughs> yeah and i'd say for this era particularly like this like 96 97 rutger hauer this is probably the filet man i, I don't know if <laughs> He was doing his best work back then, so... He's engaged here. He's very charming. Uh, he's, he's a movie star still, I feel like. I mean, he's obviously not looking like he did in the 80s, but, you know, it, no. he's still got the charisma going in this movie. Uh, yeah, he's well cast, too, I think, in that he is... He combines a kind of a, a kind of a charm with a, a kind of chiseled appearance, like a granite expression that kind of communicates that he's like maybe not quite human, but also could absolutely talk you into doing stuff, which is exactly mm -hmm. his role in this movie. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, he's a welcome presence here, certainly. And, and probably certainly, uh, I, I'm not sure it would have worked if, if one of Pyun's lesser regular players had been called into, to, to fill in the part. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Well, boys, uh, I think we got to wrap this one up. So, uh, that being said, Jack, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm going to put over uh, a movie I watched earlier this week um, called Equation to an Unknown, which is a 1980 hardcore gay porno. So if you were into those, <laughs> yeah, very like good are. film. To, to, like Being serious about this, this is a film I um, I just heard about here and there. It apparently has been lost for a long period of time um, and was recently rediscovered or at least materials were found that allowed them to do a full restoration. They've done this beautiful uh, HD restoration of it. It looks incredible. The film is, it is hardcore gay porn. There's no getting around that. It absolutely is that. It is also this strangely quiet, reverential, atmospheric kind of treatment of of ennui and loneliness uh, and kind of the 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 vagaries of a romance and what we what romance brings us into but what we also must exclude um it's it's really quite a beautiful like kind of strange film um really quite amazing and you know and as as, as a porno um incredibly beautiful to look at incredibly well staged um and just happens to be full of just a lot of guys just jizzing on each other. So, um, yeah, check it out. Equation to an Unknown, directed by... He's credited as Dietrich Del Velsa, but apparently he's Francis Savelle is, is the, the director. It's in French, too. I don't know if I mentioned that, but it's oh. gay porn, so of course it is. Gotta be. Gotta be. That was, like, the best hard sell for hardcore gay pornography I've ever heard in my entire life. I, I, job, I don't Jack. have to do them often, but, you know... When hey, you got to do it, do it. You, I think you just went shopping during Vinegar Syndrome's uh, Valentine's Day porn sale, so I'm sure you'll be you'll be giving us the hard sell on a few others soon. It's a plan. All right. Uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? God, I'm just thinking to myself, Paula's got to be just thrilled she decided to uh, dictate that we bring this segment back. Are you not going to be putting over gay porn? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I'm, I'm putting over uh, the most uh, normie thing ever. I'm, I'm putting over internet hero rebecca black she's she's owned this shit and she's back baby uh yeah give that uh, friday remix a fucking listen because it is not normal it's not what you expect it to be uh, she's she's out there making this like Katy perry bubblegum pop and all of a sudden this thing comes out and you're like what the fuck is this like is this it's very music though? 
I feel like it backs on well to our pure explorations in terms of a thing that definitely happened, but we're not sure why. Yeah, mm -hmm. Friday's back, baby. Uh, Rebecca Black, you rule. Yeah, you're great. Rebecca, I know you're listening, and I just want to say that there's, there's something powerful about... You know, as a child, you release something and you're, you're all you're, you're pretty much exploited. I mean, yeah. you're dragged all over the Internet for having the worst song ever. And you weren't fully cognizant of what you were really creating at the time. And here you are. You come back a decade later. And instead of being antagonized by an audience as a child, you are doing the antagonizing. This is a, a very antagonistic version of your hit song Friday. So uh, God bless you for this conceptual masterpiece that you have created. It's very uh, true. Very Much like Omega Doom, she's broken free from her programming shackles. <laughs> They're all It's <laughs> a beautiful circle. This is great. I love, I love how we're linking everything back together. That's, that's good stuff. Um, what am I putting over this week? You know, I'm, uh, I'm going to put over two things. I did this last time too. I can do whatever I want. Uh, I, uh, I've been playing a lot of Hades lately, which I, I, you know, I can put that over, but everybody puts that over. It was, you know, it's like everybody's favorite game from last year. It's, it's really good. It's, it's light. It's easy to play through. It's one of those roguelike games, but it's not the kind that just beats you to a pulp and makes you feel terrible about yourself. You actually kind of feel like you're progressing and building towards something, which is really nice. Uh, so yeah, Hades is great. You probably already know that. So, you know, whatever. Uh, also, because we're going full normie, uh, with the exception of the gay porn, I guess we got to balance things out here. Um, <laughs> hardcore French gay porn. Always trying to help wherever I can. There was we didn't have a rule that I'm not allowed to put over hardcore gay porn. No, Maybe we, should we not do that in future? No, no, no. I would actually encourage you. I would say more gay porn. Uh, gay porn double feature, perhaps next time. All right, great. I hear Boys in the Sand is good. That could be next. Sounds good. Yeah, get get in the sand with those boys. Uh, what's the opposite of hardcore French gay pornography? I would say probably a like a like a Tom Hanks movie from the early '90s. Uh, Kate Hudson, I think, is in it. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. I watched it the other day. It's uh, Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, Steve. Meg Ryan, not Kate Hudson. Sorry, Kate Hudson's in in Music, my favorite movie by Sia. Um, <laughs> I got Kate Hudson on the brain. Everyone's favorite movie by Sia. Yeah, it's it's number one in our hearts and minds. It was nominated for two Golden Globes. How could it possibly be bad? I'm sorry, Meg Ryan. Uh, it, it's it's good. I, I I don't really. I didn't remember anything about it. And uh, uh, wife wanted to watch it. I was like, yeah, let's let's fucking do this. And it's it's funny. It's really funny. It's it's not when Harry met Sally levels of funny, but it's the same screenwriter, so it's that same kind of wavelength and. Um, yeah, it's it's really joyful. It's my favorite subgenre of the rom-com, which is psychotic stalker that we endearingly just love. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, man. If, if, if you want like a good schmaltzy, just pure saccharine rom-com, it's a, it's a good way to go. I have no complaints. So, uh, yeah, play a video game everyone's already played and watch a movie everybody's already watched or uh, maybe gay porn. We don't know. If you listen to this podcast right now, there's a couple of links that you need to be clicking on. The first link is uh, it'll take you to our iTunes page. And on there, you can give us a five-star written review. It's very easy. It takes three seconds of your precious, precious time, and it does immense help for us on our podcast. Uh, it makes us more visible and more visible we are. More people can find us, more people that find us. Well, the more we can do for you, dear listener. If you want to up your game and you want to financially donate to us because Sean's microphone broke. Do you know that? 
Sean, Sean is, uh, he's a man without a microphone right now. How will you ever hear the dulcet tones of his voice ever again? Ever. And the answer is, you can donate to our Patreon. And you can be like Dustin, or you can be like Paula, and you can donate at a tier that gets you a, your name read on the air. Or you could also be like Paula and donate to a tier where you get to actually dictate content that goes on the air here on Optimism Vaccine. Or, you know, if you can't do that, throw us a couple bucks. And by just throwing us a few dollars, you get access to an entire backlog of amazing content that you can only find through our Patreon. And that's that's written stuff. That's podcast. There's an exclusive podcast on Blumhouse Films, uh, the Into the Dark series that Myros and Sean are doing. And you can only get that on Patreon. So, yeah, throw us a couple bucks. It would really, really help us out. And I already said if, if we hit $1,000 per month, Jack's got to sign up for the Marines and he's got to serve his country. So get us to a thousand, and if you get us to fifteen hundred, uh, he can only when he goes to basic training, he can only speak to his commanding officers like rerun from police academies, or not rerun like uh, Michael Winslow from police academy. <laughs> I'm gonna live tweet the entire experience. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's just uh, a, a lot of amazing potential here. Uh, think think of Jack face down in the mud, getting shot at with his buddies. It's it's a dream of many of us. Uh, other than that, you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine, or you can email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Adam Myros is standing by. Uh, he's chain-smoking and hitting refresh on the old inbox, just waiting for your messages. So questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, whatever you got for us, throw them our way. And that pretty much sums things up. So uh, I guess we will be back next week. 